Hello, everybody. Um, welcome to, oh, I just realized I'm showing the wrong screen here. I thought that said Mongolia mood for a second. <laughs> wow, I don't know, I was, yes, yeah, so, okay, well, so welcome to our predestination. Uh, you're, you're jumping ahead on the announcements there. Uh, Mongolia mood would be a fun one, though. Um, what if our first international moot was Mongolia? Yeah, great. well, we've already had it, but uh, London moot, that oh, is. Oh, that's true, that's true. Um, <laughs> no, we haven't, all right, we're really starting off on the wrong foot. Welcome to Predestination. Uh, we're uh, talking about this fun film tonight, and I guess I mean, we've already moved into announcements, so we might as well just roll with it, right? Um, yeah, so actually speaking of moots, uh, we've got two of them coming uh, up in October. We've got Middle Moot in um, actually an appropriate uh, one to talk about. It's in Kansas City, Missouri, where Robert Heinlein actually lived for quite a while. Um, and uh, L.A. Moot uh, on October 27th that, uh, out in California, or La Moot, as um, some people have been calling it. Um, the uh, And then, yes, we have Magnolia Moot, which is in Charlotte, North Carolina, coming up in November. So um, if you don't know about our moots, um, go check those out um, on our event pages. Um, also, uh, we're, we've actually started the fall semester at Signum University, uh, but there's still time to register. If you haven't registered for any of the classes that you see here, um, you still can until Sunday, um, and uh, it's not too late to catch up. Uh, the science fiction um, part two, that's actually starts after the Heinlein one, right? Doesn't part one end with the uh, the moon is a harsh mistress? So um, mm. we're, you're getting into sort of the uh, 70s and 80s and, and to, until today uh, or close to today with part mm -hmm. two. Um, and then coming up uh, near the end of this month, um, actually, uh, I forgot to throw in here, um, we are going to be doing um, Signum University's annual fund drive is going to start on Hot It Day this year, as it um, has in past years. Um, there will be something happening then. I couldn't get details about precisely what. I believe that it will involve some kind of reading, but um, there may be other things uh, similar to last year. Um, so that's actually going to be uh, on September 22nd. And then we'll be rolling into our sort of annual um, fun drive, uh, which one of the first events that will happen there is we're going to have a Sigma Symposia on mental health and the academy. That'll be a really interesting one. I think uh, a lot of people may want to, you know, check that one out. Um, and then, of course, we've, uh, we're we're well into but not uh, very far <laughs> into the uh, Mythgard Academy on the Mort Garthair. Um, there's, uh, I think we've got the schedule out to week 11 now, um, and we're, um, really not that far into the book itself so far, but um, those are on Wednesdays. Uh, you can check out the details um, at mythguard.org. So that's what we've got coming up uh, here in September, October, and, and into November. I uh, just want to make sure you guys know that our next uh, movie clubs coming up are um, scheduled. So on October 11th, we're going to talk about uh, the 1935 adaptation of uh, Ryder Haggard's She. We're going to do that with two of our uh, regular Signum faculty, uh, Chris Swank and Corey Olson, uh, the Tolkien professor himself. So looking forward to that. Um, and then I think um, we've got Dave coming back, right, for um, Night of the Living Dead on uh, November 15th. So um, some of our 
older films that we're looking at this movie club are you know the next ones up on deck so that should be a lot of fun um so i already have a comment from devorah here that um oh you know i forgot we have to introduce ourselves you know never mind <laughs> i'm Hold glad i'm not the one who forgot this time uh yeah Hold so on. we're gonna come back to her comment so yeah we'll introduce ourselves first uh so yeah so i'm i'm curtis wyant uh been hosting the movie club here uh since it began um although we're coming up close to a to a year i guess just a few months away but um yeah we actually announced it uh during the annual fund drive last year that we were going to be starting this so uh at least coming up on the anniversary of the announcement of it i think that's significant maybe not um i do a podcast a weekly podcast with uh Cat, the uh, other host here, uh, Cat and Kurt's TV Review, uh, where we talk about uh, Buffy, Angel, Doctor Who. Um, right now, we're talking about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell uh, as well. So uh, lots of other good shows. Um, so check that out if you get a chance. And uh, I am a Signum University graduate. I got my master's last year. I guess I'll go, go next. Uh, I'll go next since you kind of said most of my stuff anyway. Um, <laughs> so the only thing I'll add is um, uh, that I sometimes blog at uh, ravingsanity.wordpress.com. So um, hope to be, especially with the new season of Doctor Who coming up, I hope to be getting back into the habit of posting regularly. So, um, but same thing, Signum alum um, and co-hosting these podcasts. Um, same as, same as Curtis. I, I guess I'm on the left, so I, I guess that means I have to go go next. Um, so I'll do that. Uh, I'm Dave Maddock. Um, I'm glad to be back again on on the Myth, Mythgard Movie Club and super excited for my uh, forthcoming stint on Night of the Living Dead, uh, one of my favorite movies. So tune in for that. Um, and uh, and yeah, uh, also recent recent uh, Miss, uh, Signum University graduate, so I'm I'm super psyched about that. So uh, happy to be with you. My name is Dominic Nardi. I'm a political scientist by training. I have sometimes written articles about politics in speculative fiction, including Tolkien, Star Wars, Star Trek. Um, I am working on a paper about politics in Dune that will be written one day, presented at, at Mythmoot, and possibly also working on something for uh, regarding Blade Runner 2049. So um, if you want to follow me, you can go to my blog. It's uh, Nardi Views. It's a WordPress blog. Or uh, follow me on Twitter, Nardi, at Nardi Views. Very good. Um, yeah, so Kat, you wanted to uh, bring up a uh, comment already? <laughs> So yeah, the first comment we have here um, from uh, Devorah just uh, starts us off, I think, on the right foot by saying that, uh, thanking us for tying her brain in knots all day because of this movie. Um, so uh, I, don't know I if that's a sincere a, thanks. <laughs> I think a lot of yeah, there's there's a G thanks attached to it. So um, I think that's probably the best place to start. Is that this is a very strange little story um and well curtis you're the heinlein scholar around these parts mm -hmm. so um maybe maybe you should kick us off here with some of the background and context sure um 
Yeah, so actually, so All You Zombies is um, one of Heinlein's uh, later short stories. It, uh, he wrote it right at the tail end of his juveniles, um, wrote it actually right before he wrote Starship Troopers, which is kind of that crossover novel that he meant to be a juvenile. Uh, they, they wouldn't take it as a juvenile, so he sold it um, uh, to Putnam as a, a new uh, sort of, I guess still kind of in the realm of a juvenile, but they, they really marketed it as an uh, adult book. Um, so it's kind of written right in the midst there um, of his transition out of the juvenile phase and where um, he had started writing uh, a, a lot of short stories right up front. Um, and uh, while he did like another couple maybe after this, this was really kind of his last, um, you know, short story, wrote it in a day apparently, um, just kind of worked out the details and sat down. It's not a very long story, com especially compared to some of his others. Um, there are some similar themes here that he had explored previously in which he goes on to explore again. So By His Bootstraps was written uh, quite a bit earlier uh, in, in sort of his early, uh, you know, short story phase there. And um, not quite as maybe intricate as this one, uh, but does sort of have uh, similar time travel loop paradox um, ideas. Um, so, uh, he, and of course, uh, Time Enough for Love uh, is all about Lazarus Long, which he, um, Heinlein goes into uh, some other time travel stuff there. Some of the uh, same sexual types of themes, at least um, around incest and stuff. Um, there's clones, um, clones of different genders than him as well. So there's uh, a lot of other stuff there. Dom, you were sort of commenting in our notes beforehand, like uh, on some of those themes that we get here. Um, yeah, Heinlein does that in his stories. He goes down those roads and um, he, he, he likes to press buttons, uh, especially, um, so I mentioned his sort of Midwestern upbringing earlier. Um, he was very much into sort of um, making people uh, uncomfortable who he knew growing up, um, whether it's family or, or others. Um, uh, there's actually another um, short story that, or I think he intended actually to be a novel at some point um, called The Borrowed Body, which he never finished. He just sort of has um, like 15 pages or so of like outline slash notes slash ramblings um, that also talks about um, <sighs> It's more along the multiverse kind of idea of meeting yourself in a different universe or a different, um, you know, instance of the verse. Um, and there's some it, it, it's got some resonance, maybe even with something like uh, Man in a High Castle, where there's some sort of like alternate World War Two kind of history going on there. Um, but he explores a lot of similar things there. So um, I threw up some of the rejected titles um, for All You Zombies or or um, the world snake was kind of the working title he had. And then um, as he often did, he wrote down uh, like a dozen or so other potential titles um, as he was thinking through them. And then of course, eventually just went with a quote right from the um, story. Um, but the two at the top are kind of interesting. Um, the egoist uh, and the solipsist um, because especially in his later novels um, and, and thinking through some of the multiverse stuff where he, um, he, he goes through uh, like the number of the beast, um, which is basically his many worlds theory where um, 
basically authors can just think of like new worlds and, and there's a lot of imaginist type stuff there. And at some point I'm going to tie that into the thesis I wrote uh, about imagination and creation and action and all of that. But um, the, uh, the egoist and the solipsis I think are really interesting because I think um, a, another title that you maybe could have called all you zombies was the narcissist. And we can get into the uh, idea of, self-love, um, metaphorical and literal, um, in, uh, the story maybe in a bit, but, uh, yeah, there's just a, an idea, just wanted to give you some ideas here. Not that it was necessarily hard to see where he was going with the story. Um, but, uh, kind of where his head was at. Um, and then also I threw in there. So in the, um, in all you zombies, and we actually see a couple of them, uh, posted in, in the film here, there's a list of the bylaws of time. Um, and uh, one of the ones that is in the in a draft um, of the the world snake when it was still called that, um, it didn't make it into the uh, into the other list that was in the published story. And it's it's a wise father who knows his own child, which is a, a near quote. It's it's slightly tweaked from um, the Merchant of Venice. So um, just threw that in there too, because of course um, fathers knowing their children and. Uh, mothers and everyone else uh, is kind of thematic throughout the story, obviously. So I don't know. Any thoughts there? I know all of you read this um, kind of in preparation for the, uh, you know, for the panel here. Um, the uh, Had you read it before? What did you think? Did you read it before or after the movie? How did it sort of shape your understanding of it? Any Any thoughts there? I read it after I watched the movie um, and haven't read it before, although um, I definitely was familiar with the twists that were coming, just osmosis, you know, being sort of around these stories and um, talking things over with Curtis on our podcast and stuff. Like I was sort of somewhat spoiled, um, which I kind of wish I'd been able to come to the film just with absolutely no idea what was going to happen and the twists that were coming. So I'm curious if anybody here, is this story just so old by this point and well known that um, how, how common is that? Like, has anybody else come to the, the film or the short story not knowing anything about it? Or are we all sort of, is it enough in the culture by this point that you sort of can see the twists coming like a mile away? I'm happy to go next because I um, I did read the story before watching the movie um, and I had read it uh, recently, like the day before I watched the film. I hadn't read the story before, um, but I can say that I did see a lot of the um, twists coming. Uh, I think it's just uh, kind of permeated just the general idea of time loops and, and things like this, I think, has permeated culture enough that. Um, I kind of saw what he was doing with it. Um, it. I didn't. It didn't make it any less enjoyable for me um, uh, in that sense. But um, but I did kind of see what what he was doing. So I, I guess I would agree with you in that sense that I do think that that uh, the ideas have have kind of permeated culture. Yeah, um, and just to throw out here, Arthur is saying um, 
uh, by his bootstraps his in a bigger world. It's also a longer story. <laughs> um, it's more novella length. Um, and just that he, he liked that one better. Um, sure. <laughs> I read the story the day before I saw the film and it's well, like a seven page story or it's really short. So I, I, I wouldn't claim to say that I saw the twist coming a mile away because there really isn't a mile length of space within the story. Yeah, but like I, I still, um, you know, it, yeah, there, I, twists were seen ahead of time. And, um, I think there were more than one, I think there were multiple twists though. Um, especially in the movie, because the movie has additional twists. And actually, I saw the movie twist that was not in the story much further along than I saw the story twist, if that makes sense. I don't know if we're getting into spoilers, but you know, the whole fizzle bomber thing was one of those twists that I pretty much said, like, minute one of the movie that it was going to be, that the outcome was going to be what happened. So. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't, you know, it's a, you know, I don't think, I, it's, it's like when you go back to old Star Trek episodes, you just have to look at them in their time. Like, you know, some of these old Star Trek Next Generation episodes, when they play around with the format of storytelling and start in media race, the, the local affiliate broadcasting the episode actually got calls from viewers angry because they thought the, the affiliate had aired the episode incorrectly. That they, you know, so it's like people just didn't weren't as savvy when it came to storytelling, especially, you know, especially, especially when we're talking like sixty years ago. So, yeah, I don't, I don't hold that against the story. Yeah, well, and and as I was sort of implying before, Arthur is pointing out that um, this is these stories that he wrote are the reason that you know we're savvy. You know that these ideas have permeated these t sorts of time travel stories to the extent that they have. Um, I mean, I guess there's older time travel stories dealing with alternate universes and sort of the butterfly effect and that sort of thing. But it seems to me that Heinlein kind of really went down this road of your own personal timeline and sort of what happens when you mess, not like with the future of industry, but with your own personal history. Um, so there's, we have these stories to thank for the reason that the twists are so sort of familiar. Yeah, and it is hard to kind of, after reading maybe or or seeing movies like Looper or whatever, like to go back um, where they're doing the same thing, but maybe just refining it and, and adding other little bits here and there that, um, you know, we're used to, you know, sort of looking for those. Um, I mean, I don't want to spend tons of time on the source material necessarily. I, I will say that... Um, so the Spearig brothers who um, wrote the script and directed um, the movie uh, started out literally by taking the story and putting it into a script format. And they're like, okay, so we did this and we have about 25 pages, which is, you know, like maybe one act of the film. <laughs> and they're like, okay, so now we need to add a bunch of stuff to it to, you know, kind of flesh it out as a story and, and film. So, I mean, Obviously, we've all seen that the, the structure um, very much follows stuff. And then there's other things added to it, um, you know, from the story. So, uh, 
no surprise there given how they basically just took it um turned it into a script and then you know put stuff in and maybe shifted a few things around a little um oh, and when you're reading this story it it feels like you could very easily just you know a few tweaks uh to add in some stage directions and you have like a one act play you know it's like there's not a lot of action it's sort of you know the bulk of it is two characters sitting and discussing you know you, right. you, you know you put two actors on a stage and you know you sort of have that ready to go and i guess what makes it more filmic is going back and depicting not just depicting the character describing um his or her past but like depicting that as well and then expanding it out into what happens next and what about this time agency and sort of right. following all those implications well and it, it is funny because i mean obviously there's time travel in the story like the characters do go back in time and forward in time and stuff but there's probably more time travel via flashback than actual like time travel in the you know plot line of the story itself i mean i haven't measured the minutes or whatever to see if that's actually true but um, yeah, a lot of what we get isn't actual time travel. It's it's through flashback and other sort of more common film device. Um, two other, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say two two other quick um, comments about source material before we move on, um, because I think they'll perhaps set up future discussion. Is uh, two things that that did strike me about the source material, particularly after I watched the film. So. Um, the first being um, that we talked about how I, you know, we kind of saw some of the twists coming. That said, um, I did, uh, I was a bit surprised by the gender um, themes going on in the story. And it, it did give the story the impression that Heinlein was doing something to an, to an older trope. Like you would expect like the first or an early time loop story to not do both time time looping hey and let's add this gender swapping thing too um it kind of so that kind of made it fresh and relevant um also because of you know stuff that's going on in society at the moment seemed particularly relevant um to uh, a modern audience uh so that, that's one thing the other thing being the the time period in which it was set um when I read the original story, I was like, there's no way that they're going to set it in the time period in which it was set in the in the original story. And then they totally did that, they, which they, I they love. <laughs> yeah. 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 And Arthur, I agree. The, 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 so bootstraps, uh, you know, bias bootstraps is where the the phrase bootstrap paradox comes from. It, it, they called it that because of Heinlein's story. Um, He's saying this is a refinement. Um, yeah, it's a refinement. It's it's an exploration of of some difference too, right? Because in in bootstraps, um, like Dave was saying, there you don't have the same sort of gender stuff. Now, uh, Heinlein totally goes and does plenty of gender bending things. Um, you know, so in in various stories that he writes. So there's you know, I don't think that in itself. I, I'm trying to like I don't remember in his earlier short stories, if he does it, he certainly does it in his later novels. Um, people seem to like go back and forth and, you know, do all sorts of things with gender um, at various times. But uh, yeah, I think here, you know, he worked very much on idea over and, and asking questions over necessarily like trying to prove a point or, you know, trying to make a statement. It, you know, I think for him, um, 
especially given his sort of engineering background and his his you know he enjoyed doing things like you know figuring out the mathematics of you know the parabolas that the spaceships would fly in or whatever and so like for him probably sitting down and figuring out okay how could someone actually be their own parents and you know uh how would that work you know that probably for him was just half the fun of writing the story and hey that he was able to do it quickly i would suspect that you know he just it was just him having fun and who cares if he already kind of did the bootstrap thing like let's go explore as well um a few other things so in the um these are sort of like references um real world references in the story but also that come through in into the film um i don't know i I don't know if anyone has anything specific to say about these um i didn't know anything about the story of christine jorgensen uh, until i had first read the story it was the first time i had heard her name and then went and looked her up Uh, i don't know if any of you knew about her or any of that um you know story there um well i want to give a a hat tip to arthur harrow for sending this slide from the Highland Society and that kind of pointed out these references for one thing. Um, sure. but yeah, on the topic of Christine Jorgensen, I had to throw this in there because there's a fantastic unintended reference. Um, I don't think the video is posted yet for our Edward Scissorhands discussion. Um, but when we talked about that movie, we were talking about further films in the, you know, Tim Burton, Johnny Depp collaboration oeuvre. And um, the next one, the best one, in my opinion, is Ed Wood, um, which was about a director in the 50s um, who's kind of broadly considered the worst director of all time. Um, And uh, so Ed Wood is sort of a little biopic about him making, uh, you know, not even B movies like, you know, D monster alien sci fi movies. kind of running around LA illegally filming on this, you know, street corners, whatever kind of time and money and resources he can, you know, scramble together. And um, one of his films was uh, called Glen or Glenda, which came out in 1953. And um, Ed Wood was a transvestite, a heterosexual transvestite, but, um, you know, enjoyed dressing up in women's clothing. And so he was inspired by the Christine Jorgensen story. And one of his most famous films is Glen or Glenda, sort of inspired by that. It's actually more based on Ed Wood's own experience, but sort of traded on the, you know, the celebrity of the Christine Jorgensen case to kind of make some publicity for itself. Um, So anyway, just a funny little crossover there. And it made me kind of curious or terrified what like the Ed Wood version of uh, all you zombies would have been because I feel like if he'd read it, he probably wouldn't have wanted to make a movie out of it. Um, <laughs> like it seems right down his alley, especially like in 1959. So just wanted to point that out. And the other one I thought was a great connection was um, these teen exploitation films. Um, I have seen I Was a Teenage Werewolf because I grew up watching Mystery Science Theater 3000. Um, and but just this idea of the kind of teenage exploitation movie where, you know, Jane starts out as, you know, kind of normally what's the the male character, like the kind of violent, like hooligan with these sort of 
tendencies to get in fights and cause trouble and all these sorts of things. Um, and then in, you know, in those sorts of things, they're sent to speak to somebody and they get sort of experimented on, you know, and turned into, you know, their, their instincts are preyed upon and turned into a monster. Um, so it has kind of, I thought that was like a pretty, you know, I don't know, if, if Curtis, if you know that for sure, if that was the reference that Heinlein ever explicitly claimed. But, you know, for the late 50s period that it was born out of, it seems kind of, you know, likely that that was the sort of thing that was in the air and influencing him. Very possibly. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, I mean... I don't know that Heinlein ever saw I Was a Teenage Werewolf. I, I feel like he was a little more curmudgeonly than to have seen a movie that um, recent <laughs> before he wrote the story. Um, but that's just my, I don't know that for sure. That's just my take. Um, um, and yes, that is Christine Jorgensen holding the newspaper of her own article. Just oh, for yeah. reference. Um, one other thing that I wanted to mention, actually, so Kat, you had asked the question of, you know, reading the story before, um, you know, seeing the film or whatever. Um, I didn't read enough reviews to do any kind of scientific survey or anything, but I did seem to notice a trend of um, those reviewers who don't mention and maybe didn't even realize that the story was based on, um, that the film was based on Heinlein's story. Uh, seem to not like the film, seem to dislike the film more than those who um, knew about and like were aware of Heinlein's story. So I don't, I don't know if that's because like, like there were some who were just like, oh, this is a weird convoluted plot and it makes no sense and whatever. And it's like, well, okay, but do you understand why it's weird and convoluted and like what the original story is and what it's trying? Like maybe it's not successful, but when you don't even mention that it's like based on a Heinlein story, it's like, did you even realize that there was a, another story behind it? Um, so I, again, like I didn't read enough to do any kind of scientific analysis there, but um, it did seem that like the, the reviewers who were aware of Heinlein's story and, and at least the, maybe even if they hadn't read it, but were at least aware of the, plot to some degree were a, a little more forgiving or understanding of this story. Um, I don't know if that's true in general, um, but just thought I'd throw that out there. Uh, yeah, that might also just be a self-selection bias. I and mean, people that know yeah. about the Highline story are probably going to be more likely to be science fiction fans who are going to be more likely to, to know time travel, know the tropes. And I, I could see this being a confusing movie for the uninitiated, but for, for all of us, you know, we've seen these tropes before. Sure. Sure. Well, and, and there were definitely some critics who were like, oh, this has all been done before. And it's like, well, yes, it has. <laughs> and, it'll, and it'll all be done again, right? Um, anyway, so on to the actual movie version. Um, I kind of threw in here, um, I, pulled, I pulled these significant moments off of Wikipedia. I didn't do my own original research um, for all the dates here. So if they're wrong, um, blame Wikipedia, uh, <laughs> as any good scholar does. Um, but yeah, I just kind of figured I'd throw them here in chronological order. Obviously, we don't see it in chronological order. It We don't even see it in sort of real subjective order. We kind of 
I mean, it's in medias res, but would there be a way to tell this story that isn't in medias res, given that it's a loop? <laughs> um, I don't know. So anyway, all that to say that I, I threw it in in yeah like real world chronological order. Uh, and uh, I don't have any agenda with this slide. Just um, thought I'd throw it up here and, and see what we had to say about the plot. Um, I know we'll get into sort of the additions uh, in particular around um, Arthur is making comments about the fizzle bomber, um, which he didn't particularly enjoy, uh, but we definitely need to talk about the fizzle bomber. And, um, and Mr. Robertson, who is kind of the other big addition to the story. Um, I feel like the rest of it's just really fleshing out like maybe what is already uh, explained kind of in the short story where it's just sort of like, okay, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And it's like, okay, well, let's, let's check out the implications of that. Like what was the time period like? What, what were the things that the person would have experienced and that sort of thing. So any just sort of, um, comments about the, the plot and we don't have to go like an order here or even in order of how it happens in the movie, but um, just sort of what, what are your thoughts? Throw it out there. I was just thinking that I think you, I didn't work this out obviously. Um, but I feel like you could do a version that does it. I like, I don't think it would be as ambitious necessarily, but um, you could do the chronological order version of the story. Um, but where would you start? The, That's the question. I mean, chronological in the sense of youth to, like in terms of age. Like Subjective I think you, chronology I could, from birth uh, to... Yes. I think I could see a version that started with the baby left on a doorstep and just sort of follows Jane through her life. Um, I don't think that would achieve you know like that would probably be a lesser story um because the fun of i mean i think you'd still have shock value but you'd miss that thing of then when you get to the end going back and realizing the clues in the misdirects that were left by you know the characters speaking to each other i think some of that would be lost um so maybe it wouldn't be a better version but i think like you could do a version that makes sense going in sort of birth order i think I what's, what's, sorry you go ahead dom oh no go ahead i mean um, i actually now that cat's saying it i actually see that version of the story and one of my one of my biggest issues with both the film and the short story is that it's awfully convenient that um that uh what are we calling him unmarried mother john doesn't recognize barkeep john and in the movie they had to uh basically light unmarried mother's head on fire so he she had to go through uh it's pretty extensive plastic surgery to make that scene work and um it kind of works but it's very contrived and i i kind of wonder if maybe going chronologically in the movie actually might have worked, I don't want to say better, I'm not sure if it would be better, but it have have an interesting different effect because then you wouldn't have to worry so much about this making, hiding the true identity of the Ethan Hawke uh, older John character. You could just 
you could follow if you go from 1945 up to the point where they meet in the bar you as the viewer have seen jane you've seen unmarried mother you haven't seen older john yet you haven't seen that guy so when he's the so when he's the barkeeper the audience would be just as unaware as unmarried mother and so then then that could be an, that could be a different way of doing the twist where you know, the, you know, where we find out much later in the movie that there's this there's this there's this older version of him out there um you know, i don't know like i'd have to write the script test to know if it'd really be better but it could you know, it could maybe help get around that contrivance where you know you don't have to hide the character's physical identity quite so much and i feel like in that case you would have to limit the interaction in the bar a lot more like i feel the reason i think they have to have them as different actors is because so much time is spent with them in conversation like you said it would give away the game to have them obviously be the same person you you know know that in the first two minutes um so would you like lose that bar scene entirely or or make it into a very short version or kind of have the bar keep kind of hidden more in the shadows and just try not to show him too much like you'd have to kind of rework which is this obviously that's the center of the short story i'm sure that's why they wanted to keep that is that sort of the the main set piece well if you if you were to tell the story chronologically so starting in 1945 up to 1970 yeah, that that would probably be a good chunk of the movie right there and um i actually th i'm i'm Kind of thinking out loud here, but I actually think you could have unmarried mother John meet older John in the bar and have it be the same actor, maybe wearing older prosthetics, and that could be part that could have been part of the reveal, you know, because the audience has not met older John in the story before. So when he walks in the bar and sees another version of himself, it's like, oh, wait, wow, what, what's going on? And that would require a much more adaptation of the short story. Obviously, there would have to be some sort of recognition there. But I don't know that you know because so you so, like, I don't know that, that that might be that might be sac heresy, you know, to to Heinlein purists. But I, I guess I could see that version working. But remember, so if you're going chronologically from birth, then the first time that they meet is when Jane is a student, right? And she meets the unmarried mother, so you'd have so you'd have to deal with that yeah. reveal too. I mean, I, I I would keep old John in, in the shadows somewhere at that point, like in the in the movie. He's I mean, well, but they go course. on dates and have sex. Like, I mean, yeah, that's that's a much hard like for that sort of intimate setting. Mm -hmm. Like, you're not seeing them the whole time. Like, maybe you can hide it from the audience, what? but you couldn't. You couldn't both hide it from the audience and reasonably hide it from the person without some sort of structural change. The movie does it though. You just see this guy in a in a trench coat, like with Jane, and they're in a Jane diner sitting across from each other in a clean, well lighted place. Yeah, like you don't have to actually show Jane with the guy. You know, you just have to. There could be like a, a brief. Uh, cut away, and next thing you know, Jane's pregnant and the guy's left. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not saying that this is the way the movie should have been. But I'm just saying, like when Kat said that, I, I'm, I started envisioning a possible alternative way of doing it. 
Well, and you, I mean, again, for better or for worse, you lose um, the voiceover probably um, in this sort of alternate yeah. version. Um, and I don't know. I mean, the, the sort of cliche, I guess here's a question. Like, I, I hear it said as a truth that, you know, voiceover is generally to be avoided, you know, can be sort of clunky. But here we have, like, you know, David whoever Andrew said it, Andrew. like, it, it's it's a large part of the movie and, and we get more flashbacks even than we do actual time travel. Um, and the story is told largely in voiceover, like, we're getting visualization, but she's sort of jumping over, you know, you know from scene to scene and kind of filling in the gaps. Um, did that feel clunky to anybody? Like, is there, you know, is, is that kind of trying to hold on too much to fidelity of the, the narration of the short story? Um, again, that's the kind of thing that makes it feel more theatrical to me than filmic, um, is its characters kind of telling you the story rather than um, just showing it to you. And I guess the chronological version, if we want to call it that, would be more the experience going through life in order that it's experienced rather than um, a story told from one to the other. So yeah, again, I don't know if that's, it's certainly not better, but it might be a different way of doing things. I feel like you guys are waiting for me to say something. The, um, I, I think a lot of the, the unusual quality of this story comes from the fact that the the looping the paradox stuff comes at the at the quote unquote beginning of Jane's life rather than at the end and i think this makes it a lot more difficult for humans to wrap their minds around because we perceive time always going in a particular direction obviously from from early to late right that's the only way we perceive time and i kind of i kind of feel that Jane slash John, whatever you want to call this person, uh, kind of lives life backwards. I think I think her life makes more sense. Like if you start at the death and just and travel backwards in her timeline, rather than try to force looking at it forward. What mm -hmm. looking at it, forcing yourself to go forward, although that it's more intuitively natural for our brains. I think that actually doesn't make a lot of sense for for her timeline. Um, and uh, um, I think. Time, time stories that that work in the opposite way. Like I, I'm thinking of something like um, uh, uh, I'm blanking now, but I, uh, there's plenty of of time stories I'm sure where someone goes to the future and then their future person comes back and like kills them or something, and then they're you know the whole timeline changes, right? The it changes the future and that kind of thing, like a Back to the Future kind of scenario. Because the loop is like there's a there's an origin to the character and then like a, a, a quote unquote death in some capacity, right? Like the death of that timeline is just kind of, that timeline is pruned off and then the universe goes on its way. Whereas the timeline for this character doesn't act like that. There's no origin. There's only an ending in the death, if that makes sense. You know what I'm, you know what I'm trying to get at? Well, first of all, we're not seeing the story from Jane's death. Well, or how are you defining Jane's death? Because we don't we don't know how much how long the fizzle bomber is going right like we've got so we know some of the things that the fizzle bomber does 
And these are, I took these both from some of the shots that we get of the board, like the, you know, your typical FBI manhunt shot of like all the stories up there. But then also some of the ones that, um, you know, he mentions himself of here's how many lives I saved, you know, by killing these other people or whatever. Um, but there might be a lot more than just six things that he's been going sure. around doing for a time. So, so that's why I kind of, so like, is this truly like the middle of Jane slash John's life? Like how much, how many more years after shooting the fizzle bomber does John act as the fizzle bomber? We don't, we don't know. I mean, there's a significant, um, physical change, you know, in, in appearance, um, hair and teeth and, you know, various things that go wrong have apparently disfigured him in some ways. So, um, yeah, just curious what you're defining as Jane's death and like where we're starting from. Right. Um, when I'm, when I speak of Jane's death, I speak of, uh, maybe it's more accurate in those contexts of the film to say the fizzle bomber's death. Um, there's literally like you got to be careful not to mix mix uh what the time is relative to so like when i when i say uh, fizzle bomber's death i mean like literally that the oldest instantiation like literally the character who looks oldest when that character dies i would March consider that like yes thank you um <laughs> so like there might be like the oldest person relative to Jane slash John slash Fizzlebomber's own experience, right? They're in experience of the oldest, the oldest incarnation of that entity. Um, when that person is killed is what I consider the death, not like whatever he might've done out in the future in, in the future relative to us as an audience. Sure. Right. Sure. Right. Well, we know he goes to like the 1990s or whatever. Yeah. I think that's the latest date, um, unless there's some like clipping that has a later one that I missed or whatever. That's the latest date mentioned, I believe. Which, which, by the way, just uh, uh, to go back to the original source material, am I correct in in my recollection that he doesn't? There's no death, right? Like the latest, the latest date in the original story, right. he's still alive, he, so we don't actually know. Right, that, and he mentioned. Something about 1992, is it? Can't remember. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so we've got, we've, we're getting some comments. We've been getting comments. Um, so first of all, uh, Deborah pointed out I had a mistake here. Um, this should, uh, in January 1964, should actually be January 1965. It took some months for the, like, multiple surgeries and recovery period, um, apparently, for the surgeries, um, at least based on Wikipedia. So I, I did get that wrong there. Um, uh, let's see here. Um, Arthur reiterating his hate for the fizzle bomber. We'll get to the fizzle bomber. Don't worry. Um, the, the, yeah. Um, Deborah, I'm wondering how come after Jane has her sex change, she doesn't realize that she looks exactly like the baby daddy, even right down to the scars. Uh, time, trauma, other things on her mind? I don't know. Like, I, it's. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I mean. I mean, that's one of those. Right yeah. the scars? Like, yeah. I don't I don't know. 
or or was that in the dark maybe and she didn't actually see the scars that's maybe. Dom's theory everything they just courted in the dark the entire time <laughs> I, this isn't the most satisfying, but like I feel like again, it's that very theatrical, Shakespearean idea of like you put a hat on and it's a boy, you know, like it, it's just or you know, Eowyn wears a mask and we don't realize that it's Eowyn on the battlefield rather than you know a man, and so I, I think that's one of those, to me, acceptable kind of literary tropes of. Uh, I don't I don't know what what sort of label to give that, but um, I don't know. Like I think it's one of those things that it's not. I I I don't think it's meant to be taken. Not that it's not make, meant taken like seriously or literally or something, but um, I don't know. Like there's a precedent for that in stories of the kind of mistaken identity. Um, especially in terms of gender swaps and that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know. For me, it was one of those contrived moments that I, where I felt like it's a bit too contrived. And part of it is, and is that so? In my understanding of the story, this is meeting this this gentleman, the unmarried mother, is a big moment for Jane. I mean, she hasn't been that sexually active. It's not like she's sleeping with a different guy each night. And you know, decades later, she's recounting this to a barkeep as the moment of her life, you know, the turning point for her life. So the fact that she doesn't remember or what he looks like, especially because we're only talking about a year or so from the time they must have slept together to the time when she has this gender reassignment surgery, did strike me as a bit maybe too convenient. Um, I wonder if 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 the story had been changed to, you know, where she was more sexually active or had multiple partners or this or that, and she didn't know who the father of the child was, um, you know, then maybe that would have slipped by a bit more. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean. I agree that the timeline is a little close because I feel like in, in terms of looking for like a realism sort of answer, I would imagine that the easiest thing is that if there's a period of time, it takes John a long time to fully transition, that it's not even a matter of, you know, going through the surgeries, that this is, I, I mean, I think we're given the impression that it happens over the course of a year or two, but I could see it. I could see him changing so much in you know the course of 10 or 15 years that by the time he sort of gets to where he is in the bar he is somewhat unrecognizable to himself and wouldn't necessarily recognize himself as that person from 15 years ago um and, whereas if like okay. he looks like that right away then and it's like six months after they slept together, then yeah, you'd have to say, hey, like, I look a little bit familiar now. Um, but I could see 15 years later, the details being a little bit hazy, and he's lost track of exactly what he looks like and what those old people used to look like and everything. Yeah, I mean, I, so again, with the scars, like, I still think 
you know, there you could still chalk that up to, you know, having sex in the dark. Maybe they never saw each other naked in the light. Um, especially if John is being careful to not reveal the scars. Um, also, once Jane goes through the surgery and is, I mean, we see him looking in mirrors, John, after the surgery, looking in mirrors, but the focus isn't on the face, right? Like it's on the scars and other features newly acquired. So maybe it's just a matter of maybe John never really looks at his own face in the mirror much. I don't know. Should have worn one of those glasses with the nose and the mustache to hide his identity. <laughs> You've cracked yeah. it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, Devorah named the other, like, you know, obvious reference of Superman. Like, again, I feel like this is a, this is a trope. This is, and it's one of those tropes that it's much harder to get away with in a visual medium. You know, I like. Whether or not that's fair, I think when you see something, you expect a certain amount of, you know, I don't know, verisimilitude to it in a way that you, you know, I, again, I, I don't know that this is like fair to hold that on the film when the, you know, story gets away with it. But you just sort of accept it when you're reading something. Whereas when you see actors on the screen, I don't know, that's when you start going, eh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess also, it's not like when you expect to meet, when you see somebody in the dark and you meet a stranger, it's not like you expect that they're going to be your future self. So, um, you know, it's, and really true. My, my understanding, time travel was invented in 1980 something in this story. Yeah, so it's not like Jane would have been primed to think about time travelers from the future possibly coming back and impregnating their past selves so yeah maybe she wasn't crazy to you know maybe it wasn't crazy to think that this was you know that this was what was going on so um one of the other sort of plot elements that arthur's pointing at without getting into the fizzle bomber um is that there's in the story there's a sense of john uh going on after this loop has been closed and then there's a continuation of John's story whereas here obviously like the, the loop is truly closed like there's no it's just a continuous um thing and yeah I don't I mean I hadn't really thought of it that way um <laughs> Arthur said I said the f word I'm like wait a minute no I didn't did I fizzle bomber um <laughs> yes uh the uh <laughs> I was like, oh shoot, did I? Um I hope not. Uh but yeah, I I don't know. How do you do you see uh, I have to admit, I actually like that change. So I I mean maybe Arthur and I will have to have words next time we're in the same vicinity, but um the it does change the feeling of the story. The the feeling of um, Heinlein short story, I, I feel like it's actually kind of hopeful that like, okay, he's done all these things. I mean, maybe there's a little bit of wistfulness and, and not sure what to do with oneself at that point. But I, I, I feel like there's, 
it's like you're at the end of a long career and you've had a pretty good career that that the unmarried mother 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 the unmarried mother uh meeting john is a good move like it's a good thing it, it's an upward swing in that you know uh he'll go on to have a successful career in the in the time agency and then retire as like a sort of successful you know person and I, maybe they won't know what to do with themselves after that, but you know that's a different thing. Um, here, it's obviously very tragic, and you know um, ends up shooting himself to become the thing that he most doesn't want to become. So, um, any any thoughts on that aspect of the change, which incorporates the fizzle bomber, but I think is a different. I think we can talk about it distinctly from the character itself. Um, setting aside the practical requirement to have something to extend the length of the story to make a feature film, setting that aside for a moment, I do think that there are there's enough hints in the story or text that w one could interpret as hints that perhaps uh, this guy is not altogether there, um, which granted it, you know, implying the fizzle bomber is a bit much from the the source material but nevertheless like for example what do you guys think the 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 title of the short story means the the whole the the idea of john seeing everybody else as zombies and not himself that's in the original source material what what significance does do you think that has if it if you don't think that that has some expression in what uh, what the feature film did with with the fizzle bomber. I'm interested to hear what what the panel and and uh, the audience thinks about that. Well, yeah. and, and I would go right back. Sorry, I'm going to co-opt this. I, I'm, I'm going to go right back to those rejected titles of the solipsis. Is this all in his mind in the story? In the movie, I think it's not. I think we get enough external influence um, through the other plot device that's added of Mr. Robertson um, that I think we can attribute that. But I almost wonder if you could do a reading, and I'm not saying you have to read it this way. There are other possible readings. I wonder if there's a reading of All You Zombies of it's, you know, like a yellow wallpaper kind of story. Mm. Um. I was also thinking of that title, but not quite for the same reason. Um, hadn't occurred to me that this is just sort of potentially all a delusion, but um, I think just in that general, the the kind of narcissism theme, uh, that's how I take the the title, you know, that and there are shades of kind of solipsists and, and psychopaths and sociopaths where they don't see other people as real you know is fully human mm -hmm. and and i think if this person is if this isn't in their mind if this is even if this is genuinely happening in reality of course they would be that sort of person um and maybe doubt the external reality outside of their own experience um that seems kind of perfectly natural given this life story so i I agree that the film ending is different, but I don't necessarily agree that it's more hopeful or, or that the story is more hopeful. Um, because I was just kind of looking at the ending here where, you know, he says, 
uh, I crawled into bed and whistled out the light. You aren't really there at all. There isn't anybody but me, Jane, here alone in the dark. Like that doesn't sound like a happy ending to me. That sounds like, I don't know, so, somewhat despairing and kind of trapped within his own experience and his own psyche and without any, you know, time traveling adventures still to go on. Um, it's sort of somewhat bleak, I think. Yeah. Um, sorry, just to, to say, like, I agree that you can read it that way. Um, I guess what I meant, what I meant by more hopeful is that like, there's more life and like, sure. at least maybe he could figure out like how to retire. Right. Cause, cause that's like a, a common retirement thing of, right. Of like, I've been doing this job for however long and, or, you know, at least some kind of job for however long. And now what do I do with myself? Like, I feel like that's a fairly common, you know, thing that is. So like, you know, maybe in a few days he gets over his things like, no, actually having time to do things for myself is cool. And I'll go plant a garden or something. That's all I meant by hopeful is that like, there's at least opportunity to go do stuff. But yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. Like there's a certain amount of despair there, especially if you really enjoyed his job. Um, but at least he didn't shoot himself and end his own life. Right. That's all I meant by more hopeful. Yeah, there <laughs> certainly is opportunity for more. I guess given the story, or at least the short story version of the character, I doubt his ability to take yeah. that opportunity and go and a do lot. something with whatever time he has left. A lot of room for interpretation and to add other stuff as the spirits did. <laughs> I saw it as, um, maybe it's because I saw a um, one of those inspirational quotes on somebody's LinkedIn page or Twitter page earlier today. It's something along the lines of, um, very few people actually live. Most of us are just a lot, like most of us are just here for the ride. And it was one of those, you know, go out and do something big and spectacular type of inspirational quotes. But I thought it connected to this as well, and that if you look at what John Jane, a married mother, has done with his, her life, there's a lot packed in there. Uh, and there's a lot packed in just dealing with how he, she interacted with him herself, uh, made love to him herself, gave birth to him herself, recruited him herself for a top secret temporal protection agency. There's a lot of life packed in there, and um, I could imagine just having such having a life so focused on yourself, where your lover is yourself, your mother and your father is yourself. Like it just it 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 you start to view everybody else as as, as zombies. That you know, like, you know, oh, th you know, this person wasn't this person didn't control their destiny. Like he's. John Jane is literally controlling his destiny. He's controlling when he's born, what he does with his life. Most people don't have that sort of control over their lives. And I could imagine somebody saying, you know, reaching that point of ego and saying, you know, I'm master of my destiny. All these people walking around like normals who have mothers and fathers they don't know, they didn't know before they were born. Like, you know, they're just zombies. You know, they don't, they're, they're, they're you know, they're walking through life without a sense of control, without striving, striving on top of the world. 
But at the same time, then that's we're into the kind of predestination paradox of the title because he doesn't have any control. You know, everything is told to him by either manipulated or or mapped out by some older version. Um, so, I mean, I could certainly see the character thinking that way, thinking of themselves as kind of God among all these mortals who don't realize that they haven't taken control of their lives. But I'm, I guess I'm doubtful as to whether there's a lot of choice here at all. Um, which is, I guess, the um, that's another thing that the Fizzle Bomber um, ending sort of introduces is at least an opportunity to deviate from the prescribed plan. Um, whereas in the short story, there isn't really ever that moment of indecision that I can think of where John or whoever is seriously tempted to not do the thing he's supposed to do. Right? So Arthur, I don't <laughs> Sure, that's a way you could look at it. Um, Arthur saying um, the happy ending in the story, in the short story, is that he ha is that the narrator ensures his past happens correctly and can move forward. Um, he says he didn't take it as bleak so much as putting the past behind him. Yeah, it's I don't know, you know like. Move forward I, to what? <laughs> yeah, I, it doesn't. It doesn't seem to me that the that the character at the end of the at the end of the short story has a mindset of moving forward. He's he has a mindset of looking at everybody else as zombies. Like that doesn't seem to be a recipe for moving forward. Or you know, like uh, that's he's entirely his worldview is entirely based on his own uh, perception of himself. And he hasn't, he hasn't attempted to look beyond. I mean, th there is, there is a hope, a very tiny one, as you know, Curtis tried to explain earlier of, you know, at least he's not dead. So, you know, there's this, it leaves it a little bit open of maybe he'll come to his senses at some point in the indeterminate future we haven't seen where there isn't any of that in the movie. But, but uh, yeah, I, I struggle to see this character at the end of the short story as anybody, but um, as anyone other than someone who, who is still looking entirely inward at himself. Well, yeah, that's true. Maybe he's just watching a movie he really likes over and over in his mind. <laughs> Like stripes? Yeah, whatever, you know. I could quote that. Um, or the first two thirds of it. Um, all right, so let's talk about the Fizzle Bomber, though. Because, like, I feel like we're just, like, there. Anyway. Um, I mean, I may, and maybe we've <laughs> covered a lot of it. Like, what does, what does, uh, and, and, and Arthur's, you know, pointing out that, yes, it's technically suicide. Um, that uh, John commits um, in killing his future self. Um, the, yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I like the addition of the Fizzle Bomber. Um, might just be my predilection for the types of stories that I like. Um, you know, it, it, I do think it's interesting to have the Fizzle Bomber um, and avoid the temptation of having, um, 
I guess he's still the barkeep at that point, although he's like time cop barkeep it by the time he, he gets there. Um, having having Agent John uh, shoot the fizzle bomber, where I feel like so much of like today's stories would be like, let's figure out a way where he can like, where he can still have like our time loop paradox and like move on from it too, you know? Um, and I think resisting that sort of impulse is, is interesting. He def, um, the, the, uh, knowledge that, um, right. This is the temptation that, um, Luke almost gives into, but doesn't, right. You know, strike, strike me down and you'll become more powerful and all that. Like Ethan Hawke totally just boom. Yeah. You're dead. Like, even if this is going to like change me into something that I can't fathom being this, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Um, even knowing fully well as a time agent, like, and like he should totally know that like, this is something he can't actually change once, once he finds out who the fizzle bomber actually is. So I don't know any, any just general thoughts about uh, fizzle bomber and, and the character and the edition and, and, what does it do? What does it not do? What new problems does it introduce, et cetera? I feel torn on this. And I, I, I mentioned before that the physical bomber twist, I figured out within minutes of the movie opening. Um, and that might be because I, I, I've seen Looper, which is another one of these kill baby Hitler ethical time travel stories. And I like those stories in theory. I find that, and there's a really rich ethical dilemma there. I mean, do you do you commit acts of terrorism to prevent a greater evil? I just find the stories often skirt those interesting ethical questions. And in this movie, it's there's like a like a well one minute coda where he's flipping through the books trying to prove that he committed these acts of, acts of terrorism for the greater good. And it's like, yeah, and if you're going to have it, if you're going to have an, a concept that rich, make it central to the story. It shouldn't just be like a, something you tack on at the ending. So that's, you know, I kind of, if like, if they're, so if they're going to go with it, you know, really integrate it into the story. Otherwise it just feels, it feels a bit tacked on. Well, I, I kind of feel like, the the introduction of the Fizzabomber bomber gave uh, the character more of a realistic reason to go back in time. Like, because th- there were moments, though they didn't focus on it in the film, there were moments where it indicated that Agent John was going back to, you know, to, to prevent the Fizzabomber doing his thing, right? It wasn't a, a huge focus of the film, but it was there. And it at least gave him some other reason to go back in time other than, you know, the make out with himself, um, which I thought added something, some kind of depth to the character and gave him uh, a little bit more motivation um, that was at least externally, uh, uh, um, you know, from the audience perspective, a little bit more um, ethical (laughs) or, you know, positive in some, in some fashion. I don't know, was I the only one who picked up on that, who who felt that way? Yeah, well, I think it provides, like, a concrete example of the kind of thing he does in his job. Like, what we're seeing here is the end of his duties, right? Like, this is him closing the loop and kind of starting himself off on his time agent journey. But 
I guess in this story, we don't really get to see what exactly, what what's a day in the life of an agent yeah. of, you know, right. whatever, I can't remember the name of the agency. Um, whereas this kind of provides like, this is the sort of crime and evil that they would fight. And I think it's probably a good choice and in keeping with kind of the spirit of the story that I feel like you could have done the version where the fizzle bomber plot was extraneous, where it was simply just an, a way to show what his work is like. Um, and at least they kind of find a way to bring it under the umbrella of it's all the same person. Um, even if inevitably that twist is the most or the least sort of surprising. Um, like it's kind of funny to me that the one that you you know dom said he spotted in the first minute was the one that doesn't generate from heinlein i think that speaks to heinlein's kind of creativity and surprisingness as the writer here um so yeah does it quite meet the level of weirdness of the rest of the story like no but at least they didn't leave it outside the kind of main strangeness of of the story itself that were they make a good show of not not literally every person in the film is the same character but um but most of them are <laughs> um and i feel like they could have just not bothered with that um and then i think it would have felt more tacked on than it does I also think it's kind of the focus of those other you know, the, the other time travel stories we've brought up, like Looper and um, Curtis also mentioned uh, Twelve Monkeys um, the other day as well, um, which all feel like they're you know kind of done in the wake of by his bootstraps and all you zombies. Like if they're not literal adaptations of that story, they're sort of continuations of the theme or responses to it or whatever. Um, even though some of them came before this movie, it's funny that they feel like they have, to me, more in common with the kind of fizzle bomber plot and the ending and kind of the paradox of the death of like, what happens if I, what are the implications of killing myself at an earlier stage in my career and all that kind of thing. Um, whereas I think what's unique about both this film and the story that it's based on is more what Dave was saying of of the birth origin. It's the beginning. It's the kind of gender bending origin story is not the thing that people have emulated <laughs> in the years since, which like, you know, that is what it is. But like, I think in a way, even in the first version of this story, he kind of pushed the envelope a little too far. And like, I can't really think of any other Lots of stories have been written about time travelers having to kill themselves, but not a lot of not a lot of time travel stories about, you know, time travelers birthing themselves. So it's kind of funny the way the influence has been, even though that's the part of the plot that is yeah. in the short story and the fizzle bomber plot wasn't in there at all. So it's a little bit surprising. I guess that's um, what I was saying before, like the, the fizzle bomber plot feels just a bit more like generic Hollywood. Where right. the core of the story is actually something more unique and interesting, and you know, not not that I not that I certainly not that I 
you know, hated the physical bomber plot. Like I thought there was something there, but it just it seems like it's it's somewhat separate from the from what the story is really about. Well, it also gives it gives them the the solution. I know you weren't a huge fan of it, Dom, but it did give the the feature film a um, a solution to why didn't Jane recognize uh, that she was herself, you know, in that period because yeah, it gave them a true. way to change change the 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 facial features of the character. And I mean, just like we don't know how long subjectively the um, Agent John uh, or or retired Agent John, you know, acts as the fizzle bomber. We don't actually know how long the newly recruited, recently unmarried mother John. <laughs> I'm not sure how many ways I need to qualify these. <laughs> um, you, you know, um, we know. So so there's mention of you know the 22 year jump into the future, and um, it takes. Uh, him some time to like recover and and get used to that but then there's some period of time between that and getting burned you know with the sort of botch um like i guess i mean like mostly containing the blast but like still you know blows back on him um we don't know how much time passes in between there too like there, subjectively speaking uh you know could be decades you know or whatever um so yeah, just just that idea too of like we don't actually know how long of these time spans are. Um, the other thing, um, and I was just trying to look up the text of the um, story to confirm. Um, we get a limit of boundaries um, to how far back they can jump, which I don't believe we get in the story. Um, mm -hmm. And we actually get the reference to the ring, the Ouroboros ring that um, the barkeep wears. Um, that he says a fellow operative fetched from pre-Christian Christian Crete, um, which seems like a long way back. So I feel like there's a lot more opportunity <laughs> there for them to be going back and messing with time um, than here, where we have a relatively short, like 60 year, I think, or something span. Like 50 right, 53 years. Or so, that's yeah, our, something like that, um, right. where they're actually operating, um, which makes you wonder, like, well, what about, like once the future goes beyond that point, like can those time agents go back and forth? It anyway. Um, I don't know that that, but that's another like it, it's a smaller change, but um, maybe potentially too, just from like the the plotting of the story gives it like a, a smaller span in which to actually work. Um, not that we don't have plenty of stories out there about jumping to all different times uh, and spaces. <laughs> well, um, and, it, and it provides a reason for why he becomes the fizzle bomber and that his brain is addled from jumping beyond these limits and sure, too much. Too far, and too he's sort of right. Right. So it gives, you know, if you're going to have him turn into this, you know, quote terrorist, then you know, and it's, he may be narcissistic, but he's generally not a murderous person up to that point. I think you have to give some kind of reason of eventually what is it that turns him into this kind of crazed, mad person. And that's a great question. Um, Deborah says that she thought Robertson might be the fizzle bomber, um, but maybe that's just because she didn't want it to be John. Um, 
yeah, who is this Robertson guy? Um, I uh, so so we get the assertion from the fizzle bomber um, that we're just puppets. Uh, Robert said the whole thing up. He played us for fools. He's laying out the dominoes, and now we're just watching it fall. So so here's a question: Is this is this entire plot just a mad? Uh, like we get Robertson admitting that he wishes sometimes he could work outside the time core or whatever, whatever they call it. Um, is, is this whole thing something that he set up? Like, did he somehow figure out a way to start the loop? Um, and if so, how does, how does one start a bootstrap system? Right. Um, where and when? Yeah. Um, I'll start by saying that um, the one thing I thought the, not the one thing, but one of the ways in which I thought the film was going to surprise me and then it didn't do what I thought it was going to do was um, the way they have Robertson styled um, seemed very similar to John or, or and the time agent at various points of the film. There's like kind of a similar mustache thing going on. There's times where they're both like in their kind of suits where they stand next to each other in the shadows and look really similar. And um, I was waiting for the kind of reveal that, okay, even the movie's adding characters and they're still the same character. Like even the secondary characters, even, you know, the, the head of the time agency is going to end up being the same person. Um, and obviously we don't get that reveal, but I still wonder, if there's a hint there just from the way that the characters sort of dressed and portrayed in the movie, I don't know whether that struck anybody else or not. I, I didn't think of it that way. No. Okay. That's I, I, I would, I would struggle to explain his appearance if that's the case, right? Because we've seen, we've seen what the fizzle bomber looks like moments before his death. So that would must mean, and he looked like Ethan Hawke, right, sir? So, uh, whatever you know. So, um, like, how, how did yeah? How did he change his, his appearance to look like Robertson, and then go back to look like even more crazy Ethan? Um, yeah, and I'm it, not. It would be an that... interesting thing to do, but it it doesn't seem to work. I don't think. I, I don't think that they intended that for, for that to be what happened. I do, I guess, at the most, and it could just be purely coincidence or me, you know, reading too much into it. But if there was intention there at all, I wonder if it's just to kind of mess with fans of the story or people who are familiar with the story and kind of throw you off the scent a little bit and wonder, you know, sure. what if they're really all, and even if that's not what it ends up being, just the feeling again that the paranoia of is everybody in this whole world going to turn out to be some version of this one person um, kind of contributes to that zombies feeling that like, we really only have one uh, player here. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think, I, I think they would have made that explicit if that's what they were actually trying to do. So then I guess the, that aside the real question is what is his role here is i mean kind of what you're saying if he set this wheel in motion how could such a thing be done 
like at what point yeah. would you break into you know it's a perfect circle there's no entry point um so is he well, the puppet master or he's just another puppet of fate and can't really do anything other than what he's supposed to do same as everybody else he he clearly interferes at points where he knows what's going to happen later but maybe not every point where he interferes that's the case like I, maybe you know the first time he meets jane or whatever as part of the space agency maybe that's like a legit first meeting but then being part of the time agency and being a recruiter and all of that there's uh you know also the the idea that he's intervening to make sure that this time loop keeps going so what what is his vested interest and is it um i kind of had put on the previous slide a couple of questions too that we didn't really talk about like was the is the new york bombing ever actually really a threat if we know that agent john is going to kill the fizzle bomber in 1975 before the bombing happens then what's is that a threat or is that just robertson calling it a threat if 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 we never get past a certain point in time then how accurate did robertson create those you know news stories that the fizzle bomber holds up as proof that he stopped certain things like his life never gets beyond that point so how do we know that those things ever would have happened had he uh you know not been stopped if it's an infinite loop we can't actually know that so where did those news stories come from who you know how did how did the fizzle bomber get them and all of that kind of i mean i think that those would be where I wonder if Robertson, with his comments about I sometimes wish I could operate outside, maybe he figured out some way to like kickstart this loop, and maybe it's totally for fizzle bomber type reasons of by doing this he's saving a lot more lives, even though you know this bomber runs around in this fifty three year period and bombs a bunch of stuff. I don't know. It's all speculative. I don't have answers to any of that. <laughs> I kind of hope we don't get answers to that because I, I think the ethical dilemma is more interesting if we don't know with 100% certainty if the physical bomber actually prevented these atrocities. Um, I think it's more, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a tougher call if we think there's a chance that these things might not have happened and that these bombings weren't necessary. Um, you know, like if we were to find out that there's actually a parallel timeline and, you know, he, the physical bomber actually prevented all these deaths and it's, it's, just, it's just a more, it's, it's more of a clear cut picture. And then I, you know, I think it's harder to see the physical bomber as quite as crazy as I think the film makes him out to be. So I don't know. I like, I like the ambiguity. And here's a question, and I don't know if this is Arthur's maybe kind of alluding to this. He, he asks, um, are, are we saying that the Fizzle messes up the idea of Robertson being in the loop? What if Robertson is, what if, what if there's two Agent Johns, and one of them is Robertson and one of them is the Fizzle Bomber? Like, what if Robertson's the Agent John that breaks the loop? And there's a sort of dual thing going on there. 
I like the idea of uh, the possibility of somebody breaking the loop, but we don't see it. it so it doesn't happen in the film. Like, the, right. you could, there could hypothetically, outside of what we have seen, another iteration of the story, Robertson goes and breaks the loop somehow. Um, that would be interesting, but it doesn't doesn't happen. So what's what's weird is that like with 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 time. I mean, we've talked about the on several times where this story is unusual in that the loop is at the beginning, not at the end of the character's arc, right? And that causes so many problems. And Robertson is stuck in this in this issue of like with the question of did the New York City bombings really happen or were they really prevented and things like this. Um, if the if the story if the loop was at the end of a character's arc right like you can imagine it like there was this origin and the the timelines branched out in like this multiverse of timelines and like depending on what what uh actions were taken by various characters like certain timelines you know were kind of pruned off right um you can't do that when the loop is at the beginning and not at the end like it only you could only do that if you traversed the tree backwards in time um and and we don't actually see that happen um and so it's it's this really weird like it's a it's a paradox of a paradox because there's no there's no way for us to answer these questions like they're literally uh, uh unanswerable um it, without having some sort of like ultimate dimension like this agent agent john just kinds of kind of like enters our timeline through some alternate timeline that you know, does not intersect with our universe except for in this one spot. You know what I mean? It's it's weird. So like any any alternate timelines where he didn't save the the you know the people from a particular bombing incident or something, like that timeline only exists for Agent John. Like nobody else in the world has access to that to that universe except for him. He's like the one nexus where those universes cross. Well and, and there so like you know, with the sort of um, parallel universe, you know, splitting off from a decision point kind of idea. If shooting the the fizzle bomber uh, is what causes him to become the fizzle bomber, then not shooting him means there's no fizzle bomber to make that choice to begin with. Sure. But then the fizzle bomber... <laughs> But then the fizzle bomber keeps bombing, presumably, right? Like well, there is no fizzle bomber because shooting the fizzle bomber is what causes him to become the fizzle bomber. Well, I thought jumping a lot through time was what caused him to go nuts, which is what causes him to become the fizzle bomber. I thought well, it was like is essential to. Sorry. Well, if you believe future fizzle bomber, it's seeing evidence that he's preventing atrocities. I mean, I thought that's what would persuade somebody like John to do this. The, the fizzle bomber says, and I mean, we can we cannot believe that this is true. Maybe he's just saying it, but the fizzle bomber says, "If you shoot me, you'll become me." So if we, uh, yeah, but I he's mean, crazy. Why would you believe him? Yeah. Here, here's a here's a related question though. I real just quick. said the the whole the whole. Um, I think it's just before the quote that I have here on 
you know, I made, I made you who you are. You made me like that. That's the whole idea of, I think that they're trying to do with fizzle bomber is that again, that, that by becoming as monstrous as the fizzle bomber, right? Like that's the first, if, if the, if the whole point of the fizzle bomber is I'm going to kill a few people to save a lot of people, then that's the decision that presumably for the first time agent John makes when he kills us, the fizzle bomber. And I think that's why I find it believable to say, if you're, if you kill me, you become me because you're making the same exact dis- choice that you'll then keep making over and over and over. Well, that um, you, you make a good point and I do think it plays a factor, but I also, I don't think we can discount the information that Kat brought up, which is we're told that the more you jump and the farther you jump, the more it affects your, your physiology. But then this, this is, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to ask. It's like, who tells you that? And how do we know that that's true? Um, The only way you know is see it happen. And is it, is it due to, is that why he's the fizzle bomber or is he the fizzle bomber because of, the reasons that you give, you could, you could interpret in either way. And the only way we know is because of this guy, Robertson, which doesn't help us at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Deborah, I I don't know if we can believe the fizzle bomber, like he's crazy. It's a good response to say, maybe we don't believe him or he's like, maybe he's lying. Maybe he wants to die. Maybe there's like a, you know, I'm so messed up. Please just kill me now aspect to it. Right. Or, or maybe it's a, Hey, I know it's going to happen anyway. Cause I already know the history. So there's a, you know, fate predestination thing going on here anyway. Um, Yeah. And it doesn't mean that if he doesn't kill him, he won't still become the bomber. That's also potentially true. Um, But I really like the idea that Robertson is, uh, Agent John, who doesn't shoot the physical bomber. I, I, I want to think about that a little more. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, oh, there was something else I was going to bring up, but I can't remember what it was now. He just had plastic surgery again. That's how we solved the. Well, he like he looks like he could be a cleaned up. Like I never got my teeth blown out and let my hair grow long. Yeah, they're not. You know, and that's older. like they're similar enough that I feel like. Yeah. It's, we it's have, the we have to entertain the possibility. Can, you know, like he just shaved it, you know, trimmed it up real nice. And like he could be a little, you know, an older Ethan Hawk. Is there, is there any, other than the fact that it would be cool if Robertson is the agent John who didn't kill the fizzle bomber, right? Um, let's, let's, let's go with that. Is there any other evidence that that might be the case beyond it just being really cool? Does there need to be? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't have any. That's why I want to look at it more. I don't have any other evidence to support that. Um, other than the fact that he has a sweet mustache and Ethan Hawke has a sweet mustache. I mean, there's got to be something there, right? You got to go with the sweet stash theory. Um, one thing I'll say, I'm not, I'm not buying into this argument, Curtis, but. The one thing it's not, I'll say it's, it's not is that <laughs> so far, we need story. to have evidence for it to be an argument. <laughs> Sorry. So, in the short story, as as I was saying before, part, you know, there's this there's a tension between time travel, which seems to suggest that 
these events and these actions are predetermined and the sense that John Jane has that he is controlling everything and that he is controlling his own birth, love, death, etc. Now the fizzle bomber kind of suggests that maybe he's not, it takes away that illusion of control, that he's not as in, as in control as he thought he was. And even though, the, even though older John does shoot the fizzle bomber, that's presumably not a choice he wanted to make. Like he didn't, he didn't arrange for himself to shoot himself, if you take my meaning. But that said, if Robertson is another version of John, then that restores that sense of control because it is now John manipulating, manipulating his himself to shoot himself. So I could almost see it in that, like, if this is a story about a guy who is used to controlling everything about his life through time travel, like, it would tie up that loose end and show that the fizzle bomber is part of something that he also controls through, through, through time travel. So the consensus is so you we all don't agree know. with me what we're <laughs> concluding, yeah. This wasn't a dumb idea at all. Yeah. Good. All right. Let's look at the sets. Because <laughs> the plot <laughs> I think we've we've made ourselves a little crazy. And we're actually we're you know, not not quite there yet, but maybe, you know, approaching the two hour mark. So I don't know how faithful we have to be to that, but um, anyway. Uh, yeah. So why did they bother to keep the timeline? Um, Dave, I think you mentioned that in your kind of discussing this, your reading of the story and that like <laughs> you were surprised. And I think, I think I was also surprised to see that it wasn't maybe more more futuristic from our perspective. It's like futuristic from like a 1940s or 50s perspective. Um, it like insofar as they even like like we can you can see there in the the top right the um, you know sort of Jetson esque you know mm -hmm. uh, motif uh, you know to the clothing and the helmets and stuff. Um, yeah. So thoughts. I, I mean, did you did you like it? Did you think it worked? Did you Kind of wish it, you know, maybe they had pushed it out like 200 years in the future. Or I don't know. What What do you think? I thought it was kind of a charming choice, and it set the story apart from so many other these time travel stories that are actually set in our future. Um, you know, had a, it had a is it the retro 60s, 70s um, space outfits were, were a nice touch. Um, you know, it's just not something we're going to see in most other movies that are set in like the 21st or the 22nd or 23rd century. Um, that said, I wasn't crazy about the fact that they kept the Space Whores program or the Space Wenches program as <laughs> the plot device to get Jane um, you know, to that uh, to get Jane into space because it just it yeah. Even even for the '60s, I think that would have been a bit. Uh, that would have been interesting in the '60s, and it certainly hasn't aged well. Um, not that you can't have prostitutes or sex workers in space, not to dim dim diminish, you know, sex workers, but it's 
it, 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 like, there's the suggestion that like this is the only thing that women can do in space or with the space program. And yeah, you know, you, maybe like maybe you do want to confront the jerry gender barriers that women faced back then. But I don't know if this felt like maybe not the best way to do that. Yeah, I, mean, I can't I say it... I disagree. Um, sorry, Kat, but I'll, I'll make it quick. I, I, I can't say I disagree with that, um, but just uh, 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 I just thought it was an it was a nice uh, change. For, like it's it's obvious to make a time travel movie uh, futury, you know, just at a base level. And I just thought it was a, a refreshing. I think you used the word charming. I would agree with that. Like I, it was just a, a change of pace. And there's abs- there was no particular reason not to do that, right? Like you're already you're already buying into weird time travel, so why not? Like it, it just made it, I think, a, a nice cinematic uh, change for this kind of movie. Well, and and the sort of space travel in the '60s that we know had didn't actually come. Like you're already like, it's not even just that there's like time travel. It's like that our own history has been modified. So why not just like tweak it a little more to be, yeah, right. Right. It's yeah. already a kind of alternate universe. This is you know not the '50s, '60s, '70s that we know and remember. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't and remember I, any of that happening. In no. the 60s. Probably um, because we were all stoned in the 70s. <laughs> no comment. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this is crit-ficking. It's, you know, I'm, I'm trying to read the minds of the script writers a little bit, but like, I kind of feel like whether or not it worked and whether or not it's fair or accurate to the period, maybe it's even a little bit over to the top for... Um, the 60s, as Dom was saying, but um, for better or for worse, I, I feel like that's what it's wanting to do is engage with the kind of gender limitations and aspects of that period, sort of saying, okay, if we're going to set this in the period where the short story was set, then um, to take those kind of gendered elements out of it wouldn't service that. Um, you know, like I could see that being a source of criticism of if you keep it in the 60s, but take the kind of sexist implications out of what Jane goes through, then is that not really being truthful in wanting to confront those aspects of the time period? Um, no, I, just, I just think there are smarter ways to do that than space horrors. I mean, Hidden Figures came out <laughs> recently and took place before... Uh, I think it was, uh, actually, I'd have, have to go back and look at the timeline, but it was around the same time, in the late 50s, um, early 60s. So it was around the same time. And, you know, these were, like, Hidden Figures is all about racial and gender barriers in the space program. It is exactly the same issues in the same context that this this move that Jane is going through. It's just, instead of space horrors, it's like something a bit more, it's a bit more of a nuanced look. And it's a, it's also... You know, I guess like not avoiding that uncomfortable implication that like the only thing the the government could think of for a woman to do in space is you know sleep around. Sure. What about the the sort of noir aspect uh, or aesthetic to a lot of it too? I mean, I guess a lot of that goes with the Fizzle Palmer. Lot, um, 
Although I, I, I've seen all you zombies described as sort of a noir science fiction story as well. Like I think it had that. Um, and I mean, you know, the time period in which it was written is, is fine for those, you know, sorts of stories too. So I, you know, maybe that's already in there with it. Um, do you think to get away from the, the, um, 1960s i guess maybe i'm just asking like what about some of the other time sets and pieces and everything and and aesthetic overall like because i feel like it does sort of flip back and forth Mm -hmm. um even i mean some of that's with the time travel obviously but like even just um you you know going from the sort of like street of new york right in the beginning to like then down into the sort of dingy bar it, you know there's still the same time period but just a very different sort of aesthetic there and then within the bar going down into like the basement and stuff which sort of prepares you for another scene change to come well that's true and that's something i hadn't really thought of um is if you did the kind of near future version of the story not knowing what the near future is going to look like you'd have to sort of imagine what you know 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years in the future would look like. And I feel like it would be when you're kind of dealing with an imaginary future time period, it would be hard to sort of make those distinct. Whereas by keeping them, yes, this is an alternate history, but it's recognizable. You see Jane's little horn rimmed glasses there. And we know we're in, you know, the kind of, early 60s period and you know you you get somewhere else and you recognize the kind of dinginess of 70s new york um and that's just a very visual quick you don't have to yeah explain to anybody what's the difference between the 2040s and the 2060s like right you right know. you can have two different visuals for those but like it's not instinctual or, it's, or recognizable right. that you know which is which right right yeah yeah. Yeah, I mean, overall, I thought, um, I was going to say the blending, but it's not blending, because we talked about blending in Edward Scissorhands. It's not that kind of blending, right? Like, it's they're very distinct, very cut and um, juxtaposed, I think, you know, settings, but, like, they work really well together. Um, I don't know. I, I like I like I like the amount of time and effort they put into the different looks and feels. Um, there's a on the I don't know if anyone else has the DVD. Um, there's a you know special on the making and everything. And I thought it was gonna be like a 20 minute thing. Ended up being like an hour and a half long, which made wow. me regret starting it at 11:30 last night. But um, <laughs> uh really interesting like how they go through and and the set because this i mean the other thing is that this was a shoestring budget they got like three million dollars from the australian film government subsidy thingy and um that's the official term uh and uh like that was their budget so like i mean they're not you know working with a huge sort of um you know blockbuster budget obviously here or anything um, and so just the ways they sort of cut up the spaces and, you know, found some, um, like, on-scene sets, like, for the, um, you know, whatever, like, the the 
where the bomb goes off, like in this sort of industrial looking place there and whatever. But like all the rest of it is like done in like a one block area. And then like for the New York scene, it's like there's some digital, you know, putting in the skyscrapers in the background kind of thing. But like, like very interesting to see how they use all the space and everything. And um, like you go through one door and you're going from like his apartment into like the orphanage. I mean, I know that happens on sets all the time, but um, just given how little money they actually had and like what they had to do. And, um, you know, having like, even like these little, like, you know, bulbous helmet things for like, um, you know, their, their space flight simulators rather than building like a huge, like, you know, spaceship type thing that you might see in like another movie. Uh, but it totally works with the aesthetic of the, mm-hmm. the show and, or the film, um, I think is really cool. So. And then there's Sarah. Um, pretty unanimous, I think, or I, I guess you can't be pretty unanimous either. You're unanimous or not, but like by and large, um, I mean, Ethan Hawke is, I think, really good in this too. But like everyone, even like the critics who like hate the film, are like, but Sarah was pretty good. <laughs> so um, I think. Uh, you know, some high praise there, obviously all the different sort of outfits and, and mannerisms, um, the different gender portrayals, um, won a lot of Australian, um, film awards, um, as best actress specifically for her role, um, there. The film also got a few others from, um, some, um, film festivals and that kind of thing, um, just as a whole, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know that there's more to say than just that she did a really good job. But I wanted to make sure mm-hmm. we like called out her performance. Um, any, any particular manifestation of Jane or John um, that you particularly liked? I guess I would just ask that to each of you. I'll be, I'll be honest. I hate to sound like such a contrarian tonight because I actually liked this movie quite a bit, but I didn't think Sarah Snook playing the male version worked for me. Um, It looked too much like a woman dressed up in a man's suit trying to pass off, like kind of like an, uh, like a reverse Tootsie or something like that. Like it, and that wouldn't have bothered me so much, but for the fact that they make it a point in the movie several times that the John version is supposed to look like a very handsome or like mock, like a, I forget the term, like a manly man or, you know, and women are looking at him like, so it's, you're not supposed to, he's not supposed to be a feminine looking man. Yet, you know, just Sarah's no in a suit. Like it's very, the suit clearly doesn't fit her very well. It's very clear that it's just not, I don't know. So it's just, that just didn't, that kind of took me out of the movie. But for Sarah's no playing the female Jane was very good, I thought. Um, and I thought she brought a lot to that role and a lot of vulnerability to the role because, um, and it, it's, and it kind of, it gave the, it gave, for me, it gave the character more depth than um, what we got in the story and a more, more emotional depth. More, I, I actually felt, like I felt happy for her when she got that moment of love. Um, so it was a bit more of a mixed bag for me than I guess I, than the critics. I, one thing I kind of works, I think kind of works well with the way they have it 
portrayed in the film at least, which I, this is, wouldn't necessarily make you feel differently about the performance, but I think could kind of address some of that is, um, it's kind of interesting. And I saw like a, a few other people who, you know, I was looking around and a few other people pointed this out as well, that um, in terms of the kind of gender bending and the transition aspects of it, that the kind of gender dysphoria doesn't begin until after the transition. Like, you know, when now she's kind of says that when I was a little girl, I didn't fit in and there was always something different about me. It's not like she was perfectly confident and comfortable in her female skin either. But um, I don't mind so much if the male, you know, unmarried mother, John, is not super convincing because this, you know, change was not something that Jane elected to have. Um, it was something that was sort of forced on her by surprise without her consent. And she's sort of scrambling to make it work um, and working on changing her appearance and her mannerisms and her voice over time. But like, I don't get the sense that that John is ever fully successful with that. So um, like, I know there's a lot of um, calls these days and perfectly reasonably to have transgendered characters played by transgender actors, which seems fair enough. Um, and, but like in this case, um, I think you could have gone that way, but I also think it works to have Sarah Snook do it because it's not truly a transgendered character. You know, it's, you know, a woman who went, who underwent this surgery sort of outside of her consent. So I, I don't know, the discomfort and the awkwardness and the fact that it doesn't look quite right and it's not very convincing and all that kind of thing, I feel like actually might serve the characterization in the end. Yeah, and just to kind of build on that, the because she's not, transgender in, in sort of maybe the most common way we think of it um where you're having reassignment surgery she's intersex where she has both organs already and i think um you can attribute sort of the ill-fitting like suit there um because i do think that as the unmarried mother john the clothes fit better like by that point he's figured out how to wear things and or at least the style that makes him look more manly or whatever um, in the bar there, rather than when you're looking at like the first time he's putting on a suit and kind of going outside. Um, yeah, I totally agree. It looks uncomfortable and weird and, you know, sort of like it's, it's hanging off him. And I think that's intentional. I think because this, this isn't a Tootsie thing where it's, you know, one gender dressing up in order to try to look like another gender. It's, it's someone who actually was a woman and now, you know, through surgery and, you know, there's probably hormone changes going on here and stuff that aren't fully happening, um, which could also be another thing we could throw in there about, you know, difference in look later on in life, um, where maybe it takes some years for, you know, the testosterone to really kick in and, and start maybe having some of those features. And um, so just thinking about, you can see in the, um, top left picture there, um, the prosthetic brow, where they really tried to make her look more like Ethan Hawke by putting that in there, you know, is that, um, 
you know, like, I mean, we know it's prosthetic, um, you know, but is that like within the world of the story, it, you know, is that just because like, since, you know, John has become a man, like he's just constantly has this furrowed brow. And so now it's, you know, more pronounced or is there, you know, a hormonal change going on there and that kind of thing. And I think um, we can just sort of like see those early attempts at wearing men's clothes as being uncomfortable. And just because of that, um, I don't know. I, I thought, I thought she worked really well in all the different roles. And I, I didn't see, I don't disagree that there are times where Sarah Snook portraying a man looks like a woman portraying a man, but I think that's the point of like within the story. Um, Except that's not what the script says. I mean, like, I think I would accept everything you you both said had the script not contradicted that because there's, I'm I'm looking it up online and there's one point where uh, the unmarried mother character says they, meaning the nurses and the women at the, the horrors academy, the space horrors academy, all thought I was handsome. And then there's another point where Jane says, um, uh, I, th- I think it's it unmarried mother recalling her memories of Jane meeting unmarried mother in the past, saying that this was a very handsome person. So... Like they're they're kind of like I guess like it sounds like they're say, they're saying one thing like they're not they're not they're not saying that this is a person who's supposed to look like they're going through a gender change, which is when the first when I first in the first few scenes of the movie that's what I thought it was, you know like they're saying the script is saying this is some this is somebody who's supposed to look like a like a stereotypically handsome man who's going to turn ladies' heads, and that's where I just felt like the illusion didn't quite work for me. See, I don't see handsome there as a synonym for masculine. You know, I I feel like in the context of the performance and and all the you know the portrayal and everything, I I'm seeing handsome more in the sense of just general like attractive. And some of the dumbs turn ladies' heads, but not necessarily because he's the manliest guy around. Um, like. I guess I don't necessarily see that that has to be one specific type of, um, you know, attractiveness. Like you could have a more, you know, feminine version of that, you know, that kind of seductor guy who still uh, gets all the ladies. So I don't see a contradiction there, I guess. Do we know, um, one, one comment I would have on the performance is that I thought she really did a great job um, and it was so nuanced that it's hard to say exactly what, but but I thought she did a great job just portraying her evolution. We've talked about how uh, uh, the different periods of, of her life, she appears to be coming more and more uh, comfortable in a man's body, right? And I think that, you know, part of that obviously is costume and so on, but there were, you know, nuances, mannerisms and things in her performance that I thought did she did a really good job doing that in a way that a lesser actor would have seemed ridiculous. And I didn't really get that vibe from her performance, which I think was a huge uh, point to her credit. 
and uh, which made me wonder, and, and Kurt, uh, this is a question for you because I know that you had watched some of the DVD extras. Do we know how they filmed it in that, did she film her character chronologically from her perspective, um, mm. from female to male, uh, which would make it a bit easier? Or did she have to fl flip between the different timelines, um, which is how we perceive it as an, as an audience, because, uh, it, yeah. God, it would be so hard to pull the, those different mannerisms and keep all of that straight in your mind as an actress, I would assume, although um, uh, also to her credit. Sorry. Um, my understanding of just film, filming a movie in general is that they film out of uh, sorts anyway. Um, I think a lot of the filming schedule has to do primarily with sets, um, especially if it's like on location stuff, which some of it was um, for this, um, as well as actors' uh, timeframes. Like I know, for example, Ethan Hawke uh, finished his filming like a week before the rest of the movie was filmed um, just because they actually did went week by week, like week one, week two, week three and showed like different things. Um, so I would be surprised if it was filmed um, in the order that we see it in the movie. Cause that's like never how they film movies. Um, I would also be surprised if it was filmed in order of like young to old. I mean, also cause you're dealing with other actresses right you know with the child actress um who play who portrays um jane in the orphanage um and that kind of thing too so i like i can't say specifically uh, the one thing i do believe um i remember is that um so she's uh sarah snook's the one too in like the burnt uh face uh that we see there um sort of grasping for the you know uh, violin case there uh, after the explosion. Um, and that was late. That was like one of the last things they did, I believe. Um, it took like forever to get that makeup on as you might expect and that kind of thing based on, um, the, the thing, but I don't, I just don't think that's how movies are filmed in general. So I don't, I doubt that it was any kind of chronological in that sort of way. Um, but I think that's just an aspect of filmmaking. Um, and, good actors can deal with that. I, I don't know that I could. <laughs> I, I'm certain I couldn't necessarily deal with that. Um, but in this case, why I mean, I'm not a professional is, actor. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's such an exceptional case as well, because, I mean, there are plenty of movies where actors play multiple roles, right? But multiple roles that are so close in, in mannerisms and, and, and everything else, like, and, and that you want to, you know, have a continuity of, character development where this woman is transitioning into um into a man like over time and have that consistent like i thought to pull that off as well as she did i think uh is an impressive yeah uh, impressive oh thing. i totally agree and i mean you know and and they have continuity experts and um you know people there to be like, okay, you know, remember this is right after such and such happens or you're feeling this in that, in this moment and, you know, whatever. I mean, I've never been a film actor. So, but my understanding is that those sorts of things are, are, if you have a good director and, and a good, you know, coach and, and, you know, you're talking over stuff, um, you know, for the three hours while you're in makeup, getting your prosthetics put on, 
you know, you're talking through like, okay, what am I feeling? How am I doing? And I'm sure, I mean, for any actor worth their salt, like they must have a process to get into that. Um, maybe more than I would have, but less than like Daniel Day Lewis, you know, method acting the entire time. Um, which it would be hard to method act this, right? Like you could, could like, which character do you, are you yeah. the methoding? At the, I don't know what the right verb is there, but um, anyway. Um, I'll also say, uh, I did not know um, Sarah Snook at all before um, recently, although I was aware of her just before seeing this film because um, she is in, a show that just premiered this uh, summer on HBO called Succession, um, <laughs> which was excellent. Um, and so, uh, and that it's gotten a lot, you know, a lot of acclaim and her performance in particular has been singled out um, and she's great in it. So, uh, so yeah, like when I saw that she was in this movie and we were gonna watch it, it was like, oh, I actually know her and never heard of her before. Um, so if anybody wants to go check that out, uh, it's on HBO. Yeah, and so um, she, so just uh, this year, actually, the um, Spearig brothers uh, came out with another movie, Winchester, which apparently is terrible, um, but stars uh, Sarah Snook um, alongside Helen Mirren. So um, I don't know if that's, if it's worth going to see. Everything I've read about it is that it's really not good. Um, going the other way, actually, Ethan Hawke starred in a, a film prior to this that the Spirits did called Daybreakers, which actually has um, gotten pretty good reviews. Um, and it's like a vampire film. Um, and and sort of the irony is that the Spirits um, started with uh, started their filmmaking career with these sort of short horror zombie films. Um, so of course they would do a story. Uh, based on all you zombies, which actually doesn't have any zombies in it. But um, anyway, just to kind of fill out some of their interconnectedness um, with all of that. But yeah, I, I think, I thought she did great in this. I thought all the roles were really good. Um, again, I don't necessarily disagree with Dom that like there were times when you could tell Sarah Snook was a woman trying to play a man, but I, again, I feel like that's consistent with the story. So I was okay with it um, for the most part, yeah. but. Well, in my defense, and Kat probably knows this from some of my comments on Twitter about actors cast in other movies. I, I tend to be very picky uh, about, I guess, you know, I, I, if I recognize an actor's face, it takes me out of the, the movie and takes me, makes it harder for me to believe in the character. So if I see, features on this the the unmarried mother's face that don't quite look you know the way that they I would expect them to with the character that's something that just I'm I'm very sensitive to that so right your mileage will vary with I mean with performances just in general across the board but this one is a particularly high level of difficulty so Yeah, Arthur is also um, saying that Sarah Snook was in um, the movie Steve Jobs, and she's uh, in a Black Mirror episode, oh, which I did not, I not remember. Think of it, but uh, cool. All right, um, we're kind of past our our sort of de facto two hour time limit. I don't know. 
Uh, we didn't get to the uh, incest loving yourself. Um, the incest theme. slide. Do, do we need to talk through um, the the tropes that uh, you see? We've got like what, like three here from Doctor Who alone, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, a couple others. Um, one from Buffy and, and one from Star Trek, and then of course the predestination one on the top left. Um, I guess just to point out like the discussion that we were having when we were kind of throwing out examples and put the slide together is the the decision um, that all these different stories make. It seems to be a very much a black or white kind of choice. You either kind of assume that if you meet a prior version of yourself, you will hate that person because they're you and everything they do annoys you. Um, or, you know, the, the other option is that it becomes this kind of self-love, narcissistic kind of auto-incest situation. Um, and so it's just that's an interesting dichotomy to me that, like, instinctively writers tend to go one direction or the other. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of in-between there. Where you're just, like, drinking buddies with your old self? Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. And that to me was actually one of the more interesting parts of the whole story. Um, you know, it's this time travel, it, it, the, the idea that you could have, go back to your younger self and change that person's life. And I don't want to say necessarily for the better, but I think in a lot of these cases, the way that time travel is used helped the past, helped the helped one version of the self put past events into context and give them greater meaning. Um, and like Jane meeting the older person, the older guy was in a, in a lot of ways a good thing, gave her a lot of confidence. And then the baby came along, destroyed her life. But then unmarried mother meeting barkeeper John put that event into context, and he started to see it as part of a larger plan and. Yeah, so it was just kind of, it was an interesting, you know, I guess I don't, I didn't, aside from the, aside from the auto incest, I didn't, it wasn't quite as black and white a situation as I, I guess I, some of these other situations might be, but it did in each case, it, each, each interaction between the past and present selves, it did add greater meaning. It gives, it gives the person's life greater meaning, which is always interesting. Yeah, and Devor points out that, you know, as much as I said, there is this either or choice, the movie and the story actually do both, um, kind of explores both um, Jane and John's uh, hooking up, but also, I mean, the the film even more so explicitly with the kind of self-hatred aspect, um, you know, kind of starts with the whole, if I put the person you hate in front of you and you could kill him, would you? That's the sort of opening question that the movie starts with. So that's kind of the central theme of, of that self-loathing. And um, so it actually does kind of, it doesn't have them be drinking buddies, but it has, it splits the difference in that it includes both of those options.
And that's our last song. <laughs> so, yeah, any, uh, I mean, I had some quotes here from, um, uh, you know, a few reviewers and stuff. I think we've talked about most of, most of this, though. Um, generally, a lot of people like this film. Um, you know, as with most films, it has its detractors, but uh, yeah, seemed to go over pretty well. I will stand by statements I have made before that I think it's the best Heinlein uh, adaptation. Um, there haven't been many. Uh, Starship Troopers is sort of the one everyone knows. Um, there was also an adaptation of The Puppet Masters. Um, and there have been a lot of Puppet Master ripoffs. Um, but yeah, uh, I think this uh, this certainly uh, came off better than both of those. So uh, yeah, good, good stuff. Um, so there's a lot of opportunities for future IP. There are. I uh, mean, we, so I still have dreams about Tim Minear's script for The Moon as a Harsh Mistress. Um, Dr. Sergis once told me that she actually got to talk to Tim Minear about his script for The Moon as a Harsh Mistress, and I wish I had been a fly on that wall. Um, but uh, alas, it, it seems that that will never come to pass. Um, but we've, yeah, we've gotten um, various things. I, you know, I think there's uh, talk of um, Stranger in a Strange Land television series at some point. I want to say there was something else that, I, maybe it was Moon, actually. Um, that also there was talk of um, doing, but you know, it's like I, until until we get it, uh, I, I'm not going to hold my breath. Um, Arthur says Glory Road would be a good movie. Uh, that's Heinlein's um, sort of science science fiction premise for a fantasy story. So um, maybe that one would actually uh, get some uh, votes in the Mythgard Academy uh, Council of the Wise. Um, but yeah. Uh, Someone Definitely has to nominate some, it first. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, Heinlein has been nominated before. Certainly. I know this for a fact. Um, but uh, anyway, all that to say that there's, yes, there's plenty of opportunity. We keep hearing that maybe something will come along someday. But uh, until then, at least we have one good adaptation on, on film. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I actually do like Starship Troopers, the, the movie. But not because it's a Heinlein story. It's completely something else uh, other than the Heinlein story. Um, but I was a male of a certain age when it came out, and so I'm sort of predisposed to liking it. Um, other than that, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see what we get in the future. Um, next time, so our next uh, movie is She. We're we're going way back, for further back in time than we've ever gone before. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, as Kat mentioned at the uh, top of our discussion, uh, we'll have uh, Corey Olson and Chris Swank uh, joining us. Um, and that'll be in the midst of the uh, annual fund campaign. So come, um, my understanding, and I don't know if this holds true for Movie Club, but we can certainly try to make it, is that um, as they did last year, there will be drawings um, for attendees. And since we don't get a lot of attendees at this uh, fine program quite yet maybe that means uh we'll we'll get a little better crowd than usual so um yeah come see uh see us talk about she and and join in and i'm sure we'll have some inklings inspired conversation for that as well uh, cool 
Thank you. Thank you. you then. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Have a good night, everyone. You too. Bye.